Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome Brian Clayton, the entrepreneur behind the Uber for Lawn Care. Brian shares his strategies behind scaling his first company, Peachtree Incorporated, to 125 employees and the impact of Peachtree's acquisition by Landscapes USA and why he decided to sell. Next, we dig into his journey of bootstrapping GreenPal to $30 million in GMV and over $3 million in ARR and how he has decided to build his second company differently this time around. We get Brian to share how he went about validating product market fit for GreenPal and the technical challenges he faced in scaling GreenPal as a bootstrap company. Lastly, we talk about negotiating tips for selling a business and how to transition your startup post-acquisition. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Brian Clayton from GreenPal. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Brian. Matt, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, Brian, your story is one we don't often hear in the tech and VC world, and that's why I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. You know, your journey into launching the Uber for lawn care is pretty unique and non-typical as it relates to startups and marketplaces. But before we dig into that story, it'd be great if you can give our audience a brief introduction on yourself, where you grew up, and what your upbringing was like, and what led you eventually down the startup path. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, like you said, CEO, co-founder of GreenPal, a platform and marketplace that works like DoorDash or Instacart, but for lawn care services. And GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. My two co-founders and I have been at this for a little over a decade. Now we have a nationwide network of landscaping services you can hire from your smartphone, like ordering groceries on on DoorDash or Instacart or something like that. And uh, around 300,000 people using the app. Uh, but before GreenPal had a landscaping company, I started mowing grass in high school as a way to make extra cash and stuck with that little lawn mowing business, little, you know, year over year, little by little growing it to, to over 100 employees eventually around $10 million a year in revenue. And then it was acquired by a big national company. And so after I sold that, I took some time off, got bored, got the itch to get back in the game and had the idea for GreenPal for years and just decided to go for it. Wow. So is the company you're referring to before you started GreenPal was Peachtree, which you said had over 125 employees. I mean, what were some of the key strategies that allowed you to go from just a high school kid mowing lawns to actually building an enterprise lawn care business to over 125 employees. Yeah, it uh, it hit me, I guess, year three or four that I actually wasn't in the landscaping business at all. I wasn't in the lawn mowing business at all. I was in the sales business. And the delivery of quality landscaping maintenance services was really table stakes. And that where I needed to spend all my time was developing a repeatable sales process to connect people who needed what we did with what we did and just flat out do that better than our competition. So creating that kind of sales engine, that that sales uh, organization within the landscaping company is what was able to propel me from three to five to $10 million. You know, a lot of people say that. I don't think I'm actually in the venture capital business. I actually think I'm in the sales business as well. People I know who are in the lumber business say, we're not in the lumber business, we're in the banking or the sales business. So you obviously realized that early on in your career, you know, but what were some of the challenges you faced in order to scale the sales team and the infrastructure you needed to support it as most people end up tapping out at around one or two million dollars in sales, I, I'm, I'm a naturally an, I'm an I'm an introverted person. I don't want to cold call a hundred people a week. I don't want to go on sales meetings. I don't want. I really would rather just talk to as few people as possible. But I had to overcome that, and I had to run the sales process myself, and then codify that into a process that other people could run. Whether it be prospecting people from the top of the funnel to pitching to winning new business to keeping the business to renewing it. And it's kind of codifying that down and, and delegating it to people who could focus on it. But one of the main things running it myself is I just got tired of banging my head against the wall 
always competing on price, always trying to outprice my competition because the, the landscaping business is very cutthroat. It's very thin margin. And so a lot of times that's what contractors do. They just sell on price. And I just got tired of doing that because I would go, I would go on 10 sales calls and 10 contracts and not close any of them because we just weren't the cheapest. And so I began to try to figure out what it is my customers were trying to do in their business, where they were trying to go and, and how my company could help them get. One example would be uh, apartment complexes. We, we, we built the business on, on apartment uh, complex maintenance contracts. And these were fifty dollars $100,000 a year contracts. And, and we would go to the property manager and we would say, we have a conversation like, what is your occupancy rate? And they would say, you're a landscaper. Why do you care what my occupancy rate is? <laughs> and we would say, well... We participate in the Tennessee Apartment Association, and they tell us that the average occupancy rate for this county is 93%. And they say, well, we're at 87%. And then we would say, well, what if we could help you move that up a couple points? And, and here's a plan that we have. We could re-landscape the model home. We could draw, draw some traffic in with a new feature at the entrance. We could make the grass greener. And I believe if we had a two-year contract, we, we could move this up a couple and so that changed the whole conversation from how do I save you 5% on your landscaping maintenance costs to how do I get you where you're trying to go in business and how do I become like a member of your team? It was harder to sell that way. But after I, I kind of codified that and made it into a repeatable process, I was able to build out a sales team around that kind of a way of crafting our value proposition. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I mean, that applies to so many different sales roles where instead of racing to the bottom on cost, you're racing to the top on value creation and revenue generation, which is what everyone really cares about when you're selling them a service. So you basically said to them, look, we're not just going to save you money because you have to spend this money no matter what on landscaping, give you the shittiest service for the cheapest cost. We're going to actually give you the same service, if not better, but also increase value to your property and obviously your occupancy rate. That is a brilliant strategy. You know, where did you learn that? Or did it just come out from eating your own dog food? It came from banging my head against the wall, getting pissed off that, that nothing was working. We did prospect clientele from these trade organizations. And so we would go to their, their shitty lunch and learn and, and uh, sit through a talk from somebody that, that, was in, that was related to their industry. And if you go to enough of those, you start to learn their industry and it's like, man, everybody is like pissed off about this or pissed off about that. And it's like, how can I help them solve that problem with my little humble world of landscaping maintenance? And so it kind of was birthed out of that attending the the meetups that they attended and hearing what it is they were like upset about and then figuring out how I could become a solution. To that. I love that. I mean, we tell our founders the same thing, like don't try to build your sales strategy or your go-to-market strategy inside your own startup garage. You need to be out on the street, hearing the problems that your customers are facing, feeling their pain points for them, and really solving the solution that is tailored to what they want it to be felt like, not what you think they want to be sold. And you obviously heard it firsthand from your customers in a different way. And you try to see what's stuck by throwing spaghetti at the wall. And obviously something did work because it led to the acquisition of Petri by Landscapes USA. So talk to us about how that op opportunity came about, you know, how the acquisition go down, uh, and what inspired you to sell? To your previous point, it's like what uh, the Lean Startup and five other books are about, 5,000 pages of text. Get out of the building. Go talk to your customers. Figure out what their, what their pain points are and solve them. It's, 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 as simple as that sounds, we all have to be reminded of that. And yeah, so building that sales process kind of in that methodology enabled me to get the business acquired because that sales engine was kind of the, 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 
the the flywheel that was propelling it to grow and and we became one of the larger landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee caught the eye of a national company that wanted to acquire us and I never really built that business to sell it but the idea to sell it came in about year 13 and from the moment that I had the notion of eh, maybe I should Maybe I should explore uh, getting this business acquired. I then began to uncover all of the things that my business didn't have, all of the systems, processes, like standard operating procedures that I thought I had that I didn't. And uh, there's a great book about this called Built to Sell that I recommend any founder read if they're, if they're wanting to sell their, their medium-sized business. And so I had to spend like another year or two taking the business down to the studs, rebuilding it from the inside out to get it in a position where it could be acquired. And that was like another level of the game that made it challenging and fun all over again. And by the time I got done with that, I didn't want to sell it anymore. But at that point, it was too late. But got the deal done, and that created the space for starting GreenPal. That I had to get that sold and, and, and create the, the space where I could do something new and, and start the process of, of becoming a tech entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is exactly what Guy Raz says on every Build to Sell podcast, which is nobody builds their company, especially a lifestyle business, like I'm sure Petri was for you, to sell. And when you sell a business, 100% of it or you know, a large majority of it to a sophisticated buyer, they don't want to know that you've been putting your entire life through that business. They want to know that there is a clean structure, reporting, normalized EBITDA if you have it for the last three years, which are not things that a lot of entrepreneurs are thinking about because they're just running the business day to day. But you know, I know this from family businesses that whenever they go into a sales conversation, you need to be prepared that these are the rocks they're going to uncover. And so you had to go back and, and clean everything up and then get it ready for a sale. And I assume when you started GreenPal, you've been doing it the right way. So let's talk about GreenPal. You've been bootstrapping the business. It's now over $30 million in annual GMV with a net ARR of $3 million. Impressive business, give or take. Tell us you know, how you thought about building GreenPal differently and you know, what inspired you to go back against, go back into the landscaping business, but with a different strategy this time. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of it was my personal evolution as a founder. You know, the first the first act, I guess you could say, when I was building and growing my landscaping company, I, I was having to learn things I had never learned, and I was growing and evolving as a founder and, and as a person. And that was like I didn't know at the time, but it was it was rewarding, it was fulfilling. And and uh, when I sold the business, that was now gone. There was like, how, why do I get out of bed in the morning? Why, why does, uh, why does it matter if I don't? And, and like these weird things started, uh, started happening. I thought, well, I need to get back in the game. I don't want to start a, another landscaping business or another contracting company. Cause that was really hard. Maybe I can start a tech company. Uh, it looked easy in the social network. <laughs> Maybe I could do that. And, and it was kind of naivete as an asset, but I always had the idea that an app should exist I had that idea for like three years, ever since the first time I saw Uber in 2011, that an app should exist where, where you can just push a button and, and get somebody to come mow your yard. Because I saw the, uh, the problem happening every day in the landscaping business. It was, it was like manifesting itself in, in analog. And I thought somebody needs to build, somebody's going to build a platform to solve these problems. Recruited two, two co-founders, and we started working on the idea. We paid a development shop to build the first version of the app. That was a disaster. Uh, wasted all of our money doing that. And, uh, and then had to teach ourselves how to become really shitty fr- uh, uh, engineers and rebuild the whole thing ourselves. And then little by little, we just start, started working through one level of the game at a time. Set a goal for 100 customers. We just wanted 100 people to use it in a, in a week, and that took two years 
and then just kept moving that goal that goalpost up and up and up 500 then a thousand and ten thousand and so on and and that's how we did it just just didn't worry about anything but those these little small goals and and they they began to compound as time went on it's funny you know you got inspired by watching obviously the social network and watching uber get created and everyone thought that they could be a tech company overnight but at the end of the day, you realize it's still about sales and it's still about what the customers want. You know, Even if you outsource the product development, you're still going to have to rebuild it eventually because it's not going to be the right one. And you had to go back to what you were probably doing at Peachtree for the first couple of years, but just thinking about it in a different style. So maybe explain how your leadership style evolved from running Peachtree to eventually leading GreenPal. So true, because you think, okay, I'm in the tech business now. I don't have to do all this bullshit I don't have to like meet with customers anymore. And I don't have to like worry about all of these things that I had to worry about in my first business. And it became really evident in like the first three months that all of the things that suck about running a landscaping business and all of the things that suck about hiring a, a, a landscaping company are now my problem. And I have to solve them with, with a, a product that I, that I barely know how to build. And, and so that was just daunting. And we just focused on a couple of things at a time. How, what, what are the, almost like a, like an ER, uh, like an emergency room. What are the top three problems that we're facing this week? Let's just solve those and not worry about anything else. <clears throat> and a lot of it went back to, in those early days, hand-to-hand combat, ground and pound, hand cranking, phone calls, text messages, emails, just trying to hand crank the liquidity and this, and then slowly but surely building the processes around that is how we got to a hundred to a thousand customers. And and I know of no other way to do it other than that, to, to hand crank the stuff and, and, and then to know what you need to build. If you try to start with, with building without that validation, then you're probably going to build the wrong stuff, which is what we did right out of the gate. We, we paid a development shop to build it end to end, and it was a total disaster. Yeah, your story represents 99% of the people who obviously want to just throw tech at any problem and hopefully it sticks but it doesn't work that way. You know, maybe explain to our audience how, you know, GreenPal is the Uber for lawn care because there were so many of these companies coming out of the Uber days of we're Uber for, you know, uh, you know, cement mixing, we're Uber for, you know, convenience stores, we're Uber for everything, you know, but not a lot of them really made it. What do you think led to your success early on and how does the platform actually work because a marketplace for for lawn services you know, obviously have it has its downfalls and uh, it can be picked apart pretty quickly. So talk to us about how it works and how you've solved a lot of the things that have taken other Uber for X companies down. I think the main thing that helped us in the early days was starting with a supply side first paradigm, I guess you could say, uh, a supply side first set of solutions and then building out the, the consumer side. Uh, because my background was a contractor, I was basically solving my own problems and knew that we needed to, if we did, if, if vendors, if lawn pros didn't love it, if they didn't want to sign up and submit pricing and show up and do a great job, then we had no product for, for the consumers. There would be no vendors for them to hire off the shelf, so to speak. That I think helped. And whereas a lot of these Uber for X ideas treated their supply side, like fungible commodities. So an Uber in that use case, it does work. You don't care who takes you to the airport so long as they get you there safe and the car is okay. But in the, in something like lawn care, you want the same service week after week. You want you want to know who you're working with. You want to you want to be able to make a buying decision based off of price and quality and ratings and reviews and so on. And and so starting with that 
with that mentality of, okay, these are not fungible commodities. These are small business owners and they're all unique in their own way. And it's our job to, to help with the matching and then power that relationship for as long as the homeowner lives in that home, I think helped us because everybody else, it didn't matter if you were Uber for home cleaning, which was a big bust. There was two or three, uh, there was probably $300 million of venture capital thrown at Uber for home cleaning. None of them worked. Um, Uber for valet parking, Uber for car washes. There was a lot of other Uber for lawn care ideas. I think the main tragic flaw for all of them was, is, is they had never ran a lawn mowing business. They had never, they had never cleaned a home. They had never ran these types of businesses. So they didn't know the tacit things that needed to be solved with technology. Right. So your industry experience is obviously what allowed you to really feel the pain point from the supply side, rather than just being some tech bro coming out of, you know, some, you know, Facebook company and thinking, oh, I know I can just build a bunch of buttons and features that will give them the best business experience on our platform. Also, the other thing that you had going for you, I think, was the fact that you were bootstrapped and not venture backed. So you had to be profitable or somewhat profitable from the very beginning. Can you talk about how being bootstrapped affected your decision-making process when it came to spending money or building on new features and hiring people? I think it was the right bet for us uh, because even though I was a second-time founder, I had built and sold uh, an eight-figure business, I was very much a first-time founder all over again because the journey and experience of building a blue-collar traditional business and building a tech company are almost not even the same sport. Yeah, there's some commonalities and and there's some things that do port over, but but the big difference is inventing a new product from scratch. That you know, you're it's not like you're running a traditional playbook in a traditional business. You're inventing something new and bringing something new to the market, and that is a very different thing. It's it's a weird dichotomy, like if it's a weird paradox. If 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 uh, Doc from uh, from Back to the Future rolls up in the driveway in the DeLorean and he says, hey, let's go back to 2012 and let's do this all over again. Rather than, you know, first thing I do is buy a bunch of Bitcoin. But if I didn't do that, I would, I would raise, I would raise venture capital, start this business because I know everything there is to know. I know, I know who I need to hire. I know what moves I need to make and, and capital will allow me to go through that much quicker. But at the time, I didn't know shit. And if you'd give me five or 10 million bucks or even a million dollars, I just would have pissed it away in, in 12 months or 24 months, which is what pretty much every other Uber for X company did. You know, a lot of people forget Uber was founded by, by Travis Kalanick and, and Garrett Camp. Both of those guys had already built and sold a couple of companies before. They, were, they had been around the block. They were experienced operators in this. So they kind of knew what the chops were. And and I did it. So what enabled us to kind of get through that was, was just necessity is the mother of invention, not having a bunch of money to waste, focusing on one thing, our users, and calling them and talking to them and letting them be like free R&D and guide us through the, the darkness of inventing a new product. And then the other thing was it's setting really small goals that were still hard to achieve, but really small goals that we would attain, that we would achieve and attain, and then celebrate like they were big goals and keeping that momentum and knowing that if we just stuck with it, time and compounding would do its thing. And while we're 10 years in, it's still day one, you know, at least we have a, a, a liquid marketplace that's working. And the first three or four years were really tough to get it going. But, but, now, but now the compounding is starting to take hold. Yeah. I mean, especially building a marketplace in your industry, you know, there's so much attrition that happens or so much leakage where the, you know, the supply side ends up going off the platform 
to meet up with the demand side after they've serviced them one or two times. And, you know, that's what kills a lot of these, you know, contracting services, marketplaces. How did you solve that problem day one? And how have you continued to make sure that both your supply side and your demand side continue to stay sticky to the platform? Uh, Approaching this from like a heavy hand, top down kind of uh, terms and conditions, rules of the marketplace type of way is, is, is the wrong approach. Because you're never going to police it all. You're never going to, you're never going to prevent it all. And so we've never taken that approach. We, we never looked at uh, platform disintermediation as something that was happening to us. It was, we looked at it as though it was happening for us. And we, we let it serve as an indication of where we just weren't adding enough value. In the early days, it happened a lot because our product sucked. And it just didn't have the tools it needed. It didn't, didn't have the features it needed. And so we would, every time we would find this out, we would uncover it. We would call the contractor and say, Hey, you know, Mrs. Smith said she paid you directly through Venmo uh, last week. And we noticed this, the transaction got canceled on the system. Why did you do that? And, and, and you would hear about one of a dozen different things. Well, you know, I don't have any other lawns uh, on that side of town. And it was more of a pain in the ass than it was worse. So I didn't really care about it. Or, well, the fee is too much and, and, I, and, and I'm not making enough money and, and so I needed to save the fee. Or uh, it, it was her idea. She, she wanted to do it. She didn't want to use the <laughs> app. You, know, you, you name it. And so we would take like all like 12 or 20 things that would happen and we would, we would put it into compartments on a spreadsheet and then we would solve one at a time and try to figure out, okay, well, well the, if it's a problem of route density, then we need to get this contractor 10 customers on the, in the same street. And if, if all 10 of them are on GreenPal, that creates the lock-in. Okay, well, let's work on that. And then we just kept going through these use cases to figure out how do we add more value to where it doesn't make any sense to do it the old way. The life of a contractor sucks. You get up uh, before the sun comes up and and you sharpen lawnmower blades and then you go mow grass all day. And then you, at dark, you come home with gasoline. You smell like gas and grass clippings all over you. And then you do bookkeeping at your kitchen counter. Uh, and then you come to realize that that like half of the people you mowed last week haven't paid you yet. And, and so it's like, so how do we solve some of those things in the day in the life of a contractor to where it doesn't make any sense to do it the old way? That's one way to approach it. The second way we approach it is at scale now, we measure this stuff. We know uh, how often a contractor gets booked for a second, third, and fourth appointment. And if those numbers aren't within the range of what's acceptable, then it means one of two things. It means that uh, they suck. And nobody's hiring them again, and which means they need to be off the platform or they're taking people off the platform. If it's either or, they need to be sidelined. And so we have a process in which we deal with that. So you really are obsessing with customer pain points and client pain points to like never ending degrees, which is so important for people to understand. You want to feel exactly what it is that these customers and clients of your services are disagreeing with on what you are not doing for them or what they can get done better somewhere else. And I think it's that obsession that you had instilled in you, obviously, when you were running Peachtree, that allowed you to drive GreenPal past a lot of those blockers that a lot of startup marketplaces often face. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a secret weapon that I have. And let me tell you my secret weapon. I do one hour of customer support per day personally. And this is my my big secret that I think has gotten me to where I am today. You know, even though we have a customer support team and we have thousands of people using the platform at any given time, I still jump in there at least an hour and I'll answer the 
I'll, I'll, I'll answer the call center phone or I will do live chat or I'll answer email tickets. And so that closes the gap between founder logic and customer logic. There's this weird gap that always forms. The customer is looking at, at the problem and solution from one angle and the, or one perspective and the, and the founder is looking at it from a totally different perspective. And if it goes untreated, it's almost like they start to talk different languages and they can't even communicate anymore. And it's like the customer is like, what is this company speak? I don't even understand. And no, I just want my damn yard mode. What are you talking about? So it's like, well, to, to close that gap, I, I talk to customers every day, vendors also. And, and in order to understand their perspective, their thought sequences, what's pissing them off, what's making them happy. And it's, it's just been free in R&D for, for a decade. That's amazing. You know, given your Peachtree experience and learning how to sell differently with like the apartment buildings uh, and all that information that you gathered from that experience, how has that helped you increase your customer, you know, penetration, lower your customer acquisition costs, and obviously have you spend better time on marketing and customer acquisition this time around? Yeah, the sales strategies are very different, but the principles are the same. So, so in the first business, it was very much uh, an outbound sales team driven prospecting, you know, like a, like a, sometimes a three year sales cycle <laughs> to get, to get business. Whereas green pal is a very much a self-serve you all, you onboard yourself. You, if you like what you see, you sign up right then and there and you get your lawn mode the same day. So, so the, the sales uh, processes are very different, but the principles are the same with, with working backwards from what the hell is the customer w- trying to get? What do, what do they want out of life? What are they trying to do? And and a lot of times with GreenPal is they've been ghosted by two other contractors. Their grass is now four feet tall. They just got a letter from the city uh, with a $300 citation. Nobody else will call them back. Nobody else will touch it. And here is a solution. Get your lawn mowed without making a phone call. And the same day, even if it's four feet tall, yes, you have read my mind. Where do I sign up? And so Starting with beginning with the end in mind, where is our customer trying to get to, and then building out a solution from that point backwards is the, is the same principle that was the same when I was pushing a lawnmower uh, versus now you know running a, a, a platform that powers this industry. And how do you think about building a community around your uh, supply side? How have you empowered them to drive their businesses forward and made them better better business builders and managers? By leveraging the Green Pal platform, really, it's why we do what we do. It, it, it's like we offer a nice convenience for consumers. I mean, yeah, you know, the world wasn't going to stop because nobody mowed your yard, and so somebody took care of it, and that's great. But really, why we do what we do is helping hardworking small business owners in this industry get ahead in life, giving them access to like a way to in, in, to. In, to improve their station in life. We get stories like this all the time. We have a big Facebook group where we invite all these folks into, you know, because a green pal is able to pay off credit card debt or student loan debt or, or buy a house, or here's a big one, buy a riding lawnmower. And you might say, big deal. I got a riding lawnmower. No, 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 no. Your riding lawnmower is like a $2,000 riding lawnmower. A riding lawnmower in the industry is like 18 grand. And, and that's a big moment when you can go from not having to walk all day or push a mower all day to riding and, and your back doesn't hurt anymore. You're making twice the money you were making. And so it's like seeing those moments, seeing, seeing those, like those improvements in somebody's life, not because we did it for them, but we kind of helped them uh, get there is, is why we do what we do. And it makes it fun. 
I love that. The Lamborghini moment uh, for a lawn care service provider is really that impactful to their career and their family and their, their, their journey. And you're a part of that. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs out there who want to or have been building the Uber for X, whatever that X is, and are just tired of being taken advantage of or just not seeing people leverage the platform for the way it was built? because of many factors. What advice would you give them now if they're like running out of money? They're like, I've been doing this marketplace for so long and I'm still not making a buck. It sucks. The shittiest kind of business is one that's that's kind of working. It's like uh, you, you either hope it, it's just a huge grand slam or it doesn't work at all. And it's in that it's in that middle. And, and, and I have felt that way at times. And it's not like we've conquered this industry or the world or anything, but, but we're doing good now. And so I have felt that way. And so how do you know whether to do a major pivot, to give up and try something new, or to keep grinding on it? I think if you can keep moving that number forward and setting smaller goals, a lot of times success is results. And success is expectations minus results. What did you expect to happen? What actually happened? Am I successful or not? And a lot of times we, we screw that up because our expectations were just out of whack. And it's like, you, you wanted a million users in two years, it wasn't going to happen. And it's like, no, we need to get a thousand users and then we need to compound that. So I think if you can keep moving that forward, never give up. Because because I see a, a, one big problem in a lot of founders is, is they give up too quick, the, especially the younger ones. It's like this bright, shiny object, object syndrome and they want to go from perceived opportunity to the next and, and they never get any real traction with any of them. And so Unless it's just flat out not working, then you can, there's no matter what you do, you can't grow the number. The, whatever the metric that matters for us is transactions per week, an active metric that that describes the health of the platform, and you can't grow it no matter what you're doing. Then maybe it's time to to pivot back to maybe a SaaS solution or or a whole new opportunity or a whole new idea. But never give up so long as you're able to move that number. Yeah, that's really great advice. You know, I think also just having a very clear goal in mind that you know you can actually achieve and not being kind of distracted by so many different opportunities all the time. Saying no is a really hard thing to do as an entrepreneur. But that's actually what makes you a great entrepreneur is the ability to say no to 99% of the things at the time where you need to focus on one really important thing. How have you been able to say no to all the different requests coming in from customers and users and also your team? Yeah, it's like uh, you get caught up in the thick of thin things is is what uh, Dr. Stephen Covey talks about in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the other thing he talks about in that book is is uh, losing sight and getting caught up in uh, things that are urgent but not important, and and trying to stay in the in the quadrant of things that are important but not urgent. And I have been guilty of this for years and not really knowing it. And, and you're just kind of like a, like a hamster on a hamster wheel. And so for us, the thing that we always do is we don't focus on much more than about two or three things at a time. Two or three thing, three key things we're trying to improve in the business, improve on the platform. And then we, we always rank them based on, on number of times that the, that the incident is occurring and the impact that a fix would have or or, or the impact that a new feature would have or a new workflow. We, we try not to spin our wheels on things that are urgent and not important. It's hard. It's super hard. The other thing that, that helps me is like I made a decision a decade ago when I sold my first company and now, now built my second is that no matter what, I was going to be working on my best idea. No matter what. My best idea, seven days a week, I'm working on my best idea. 
Fortunately, I'm not terribly creative. I haven't had, I've had one good idea in a decade. And so it was like, by default, I don't get bright, shiny object syndrome. We're sprinkling AI in our platform, but I don't have the next big AI uh, idea. Therefore, I don't get FOMO about that. Like I, I, I am building the Uber for log care and that's what I'm doing. And so, and so I think if you can make a decision, I'm going to work on my best idea. I've got, you know, one or one good idea. I'm going to spend a decade on it. It can help a lot of that kind of bright, shiny object syndrome and help some of the FOMO. Yeah. Being distracted can be a blessing and a curse for sure. Having a lot of ideas and being very creative can be a blessing and a curse. And it sounds like you've realized you don't have a lot of creative ideas often. So that's a blessing for you. How have you learned how to delegate properly? You've got a can-do attitude. You're an entrepreneur. You want to go, 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 even if it's only on one focused idea. How have you learned how to delegate better as a leader? Pretty much every single time I've ever delegated anything that I didn't do myself for a little while, it's always blowing up in my face. You look at like the masters and, and, and they, they seemingly do this, but they really don't. Like Elon Musk can speak to any aspect of any of his businesses at a very like practical, like actionable level. It doesn't matter if it's w- with, a, <laughs> with, a, with a scientist at SpaceX or, or somebody who's working on the line in Tesla. He can like go top to bottom and speak to any aspect of those businesses. And I think you need to be able to do that as a founder. You need like, you know, like if you're trying to build a tech product and you've never laid down a line of code, it's going to be rough. I've seen it work. It can, but man, if you can like learn the 80, 20 of some kind of development and build the first shitty version yourself, cobble it together by any means necessary, it can really put you in a much stronger position to be able to build out a team around you of engineers and developers to know what that looks like, to know what success looks like. And same as for us, uh, every core competency we have, I have done terribly, but at least the best that I could for a period of time. So then I know how to delegate. I know what success looks like. I know what the role should be and what the goals should be. Uh, and I know what, when somebody is blowing smoke up my ass versus not, and because I've done it for a while. And then every time I disobey that, I always piss away like money and time doing the wrong stuff. Yeah, it's great advice. I mean, the same thing with this podcast. You know, I had to do every show myself and edit and, and you know split up and promote and everything myself. And I think that's what made me want to also you know find someone to help out with it. But that's like everything in our companies as well. If like if the founder cannot speak the same language, one, they won't have empathy towards the person that is doing that task, and two, they won't be able to put up the rail guards on telling them when and where they should focus on certain aspects of the project because they've never done it themselves. And so they're going to let somebody else take the wheel and that wheel may go in a totally different direction because they don't know any better as a leader. So that's important for obviously a lot of people out there to listen to. You know, I got to ask you, as an entrepreneur, you obviously get motivated by a lot of things, but what's the most rewarding aspect of being an entrepreneur for you? It's it's two things. It's, it's, it's intrinsic and extrinsic. Internally, like I become my whole new person every year or two. I am not the same person I was when I started this company. And I think if you're and if you're pouring your heart and soul into uh, a project, into a company, you'll evolve into a whole new person. And that's a lot of fun. Like, see, you'll watch, you'll read books. Like, I, 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 uh, you'll, you'll watch a movie that you saw 10 years ago, and it just won't resonate the same way. Or you'll see it completely different. And, and it's because as a, as a founder, you're, you're learning and growing and you're overcoming challenges. And I think you're living a much more interesting life than you would otherwise. At least that's how it's been for me 22 years. And uh, so that's one reason. The other reason, like I mentioned earlier, is is building something 
that people get value from and can help them get where they're trying to go in life. I think like Steve Jobs said in an interview one time, you know, you, you poke at life, you, you poke here and something pops out there. And once you see that, you'll never look at the world differently. And in my humble little world of lawn care, I kind of, I kind of see it that way that, that, you know, I'm not changing the world here, but I am building a platform that's helping thousands of, of landscaping companies improve their businesses and make more money with less headache and and get somewhere in life that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. For me, that's a lot of fun. That's why I get out of bed in the morning. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, where should we see Green Pal? You've been at this for 10 years. Where should we see in the next 10 years? Man, I really want to get to a million people using this thing. I don't like that's rooted in nothing other than I think it would be like like a like a great milestone. A million people use this, using this thing on a weekly basis. I, I want it to be and the in the same conversation as a DoorDash and Instacart and Uber and Airbnb and and in the lexicon of the English language, like, hey, dude, your grass is four feet tall. Just get a green pal to do it. Like, and so I I, I think we can get there in five years, but hopefully by God, in ten. If we don't, if we're not there in ten, then I've 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 messed up somewhere. <laughs> well, I hope you get there. You know, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorite. So first off, your favorite podcast. Gosh, so hard to pick one. I listen to five or six a day, but. I'm a, I'm 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 reluctant to admit this. It's probably the all in, the all in podcast. Who's your favorite bestie? Uh, I have mixed emotions about all of them. Uh, they all they all piss me off and surprise me and 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 bring me joy uh, in some way. Uh, but probably Jason because I I I relate to him the most. He's just a he started off as a blue collar dude and like willed his way to where he is and. And like, I, like my oven doesn't burn as hot as the other three guys. Like I'm not as smart as they are, but I'd like to think I'm as smart as Jason. And, <laughs> and so, and so, so that's who I am. But, but then he, he'll say some shit every now and then I'm like, come on, man. But, but still, that's probably the guy I, I relate to the most. Yeah. I definitely think he, he, he gets shit on a lot more than uh, he should for what he's done and created. But again, he's on a different level than where those other guys are. Exactly. From where he started to where he ended up with zero luck, really. Uh, I think he deserves the more kudos than the other guys. Yeah. Fair enough. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. My favorite newsletter is uh can't pronounce this dude's last name, but Lenny Rab Minchkinska. Yeah, Richinsky. <laughs> Richinsky, yeah. I, I I like his stuff. It's very practical. One of the hats I've had to try to wear over the years is 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 one of a product manager. Ten years ago, I never even heard of that term. Um, and I had to learn how to build a product and 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 his stuff is pretty insightful. He had a he had a podcast on SEO about a year ago that was just amazing. And SEO is a big channel for us. So I like I, I listen to a ton of uh, SEO podcasts and SEO n- newsletters, but but his is a good, well-rounded newsletter. Yeah, fantastic. Next is your favorite tech gadget. Ooh, man, I'm waiting. I mean, the the iPhone is is like, dude, it's like the it's like the command center. I travel a lot. I travel ten or eleven months out of the year, different parts of the world, and it's amazing to me how I am running this whole freaking operation from an iPhone. It's just incredible to me. Like I, I don't use a desktop much anymore. It's just insane. Like 15 years ago, uh, I'll have to wait till I get back to the office to do that for you. Like those days are gone. If I had this iPhone in 2002, I could have made 10 times the money I was making in the contracting business. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Next is your favorite new trend. I gotta go with the magic that 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 language models are doing for us, man. I I, I think 
I don't know, like a lot of people shit on these, these rapper ideas, but I think let those people experiment, let those people do what they're doing. Let them try to like, yeah, they're starting off here, but who knows where they're going to end up. And so the ability to go to like a chat GPT like thing for a doctor visit, rather than having to slip down to the doctor's office, I think, I think that's going to come. And, and like, I, I, I was asking us the other day about some stuff about a skin rash that I had and, and it was giving me more comprehensive, better information than I was getting from doctors. So who knows what, what a couple of years looks like. Yeah. It's like, uh, when people were shitting on telemedicine in 2016 and 17 before it really took off in, in COVID. So I agree with you. There's a lot of, a lot of hype, but there's also a lot of validity of what may come out of it. So very exciting. That's right. Let those people, let those people work. Yep. Next is your favorite book. My favorite book I mentioned earlier uh, is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Most recently read favorite book is The Cold Start Problem by Andrew Chen. What a great actionable handbook on, on getting a marketplace going. Yeah, for sure. Right up your alley. Absolutely. I read that probably about six months ago now, but definitely some perfect tidbits for people like you. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. A quote from uh, Sam Walton, walk your store, walk the store. Three letters, three words, walk your store, do business with yourself, use your own website, secret shop, whatever the hell it is you're doing, walk the store, take time. Don't forget what it's like to experience your business as a customer. No, it's funny you mentioned that because I listened to the uh, Acquired FM podcast and they just did the Costco episode and Sam Walton was a big feature of that because not only did Sam walk his own store, but he also walked all the Price Club Costco stores and stole all of the ideas and actually was caught shamelessly shamelessly and was caught writing notes in a notepad that were stolen by the security officers and then were mailed back to Sam from Saul Price, the founder of Costco Price Club, because he said, here are your notes. Good luck. Have at it. Copy whatever you want. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was funny you mentioned that. Well, thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with founder and CEO of Your Green Pal, Brian Clayton. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague who'd benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.